0: Welcome to the USU Career Studio podcast that helps you navigate your career path. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to tell your friends and family all about it. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to get access to our newest content. Thanks for joining us for our Friday face-to-face episode. I'm Marissa Armistead, your host, and I am really excited to welcome Mike Walker to the show today. Welcome, Mike.
1: Thank you so much, Marissa. It's exciting to be here.
0: As the first Dean of Students for College of Eastern Idaho, Mike established a variety of new and restructured student services, setting the agenda for the Student Affairs Division over the past three years. He's helped lead the charge on a variety of new departments and services, including student mental health counseling services, disability resources, enrollment management, a Title IX office, and student conduct. He also revamped several programs and assisted in the development of new ones. He also currently teaches ethics courses at CEI, as well as an administrative. Mike is an education psychology researcher. He will complete his PhD in education from Utah State University in 2021. His research explores the psychology of hope in new freshmen. He also holds two master's degrees, one in history from BYU and another in higher education and student affairs from USU. Mike earned a bachelor's degree in history from BYU-Idaho and has over 13 years of experience in the classroom setting, teaching world history, American history, philosophy, ethics, and human So, Mike is incredibly dedicated uh, to improving the student experience at College of Eastern Idaho and really helping improve student enrollment, and retention. So excited to have you on the show today, Mike. I have to bring up as a fun fact, you mentioned that you actually grew up in Brussels, Belgium, and Tacoma, Washington. So I have to hear a little bit more of the backstory. What, what drove sure. these moves?
1: <laughs> well, I love that introduction, by the way. So thank you. So when I was a small child, my dad was called to be a mission president for the LDS church in Brussels, Belgium. And so I was five years old and we lived in Brussels for three years. And I, I went to international school brussels Uh, i joke the cost of tuition there was more than my bachelor's, master's, and PhD combined um, for K through two education. Wow. Uh, but it was, it was an amazing experience. International school. Brussels is a phenomenal school. I only had 12 students in my class, very, very elite private school, but I learned French as a kindergartner. And so that was cool. And it had an influence on the rest of my life. And so it was really neat. And then my, uh, Tacoma, my dad was a lawyer in Tacoma. He's originally from Idaho Falls where I live now, but they still live in Tacoma. And so I grew up in Tacoma and Seattle and started college out there at Western Washington University for transferring, and so anyway, yeah, Brussels, Belgium. So I've gone back to Europe many, many times, and I'm fluent in French, and it's really cool.
0: Very cool. I'll I always have back. to give a Washington shout out. That's where my my roots were. Um, so oh, really? I, I love. Mm-hmm.
1: Where, yep. where about?
0: You know, we lived a little bit of everywhere. Most recently, my parents were located in the Klamath Bay area, which is. Like the if you look at the map of Washington, it's like the very tip top point um, of the coast.
1: Oh, really? <laughs>
0: so a little bit out in the boonies, but.
1: <laughs> oh, that's great! I, well, I started college in Bellingham before I later transferred to BYU Idaho, and it's so beautiful in that area.
0: Yes, I miss all of the green, and I actually do miss the rain. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, it's nice.
0: Well, Mike, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I always, I've had a little bit of nerves as I ask people to talk about failure. I hope people don't assume that I see them as a failure. I'm simply asking them because I I think they've been able to turn those setbacks into success. So really excited to have you. And I'd love to begin our conversation by maybe having you give us your personal definition of what failure is and what role it can play in our career progression.
1: Yes, absolutely. So failure is essential to learning. So I see failure as uh, fundamental to what we do in a a learning process. You know, if I had not learned the hard way on a couple of things, I wouldn't have learned the good things about those journeys and those struggles and those achievements. I even think about right now, I'm working on my PhD and have been for a long time, uh, (laughs) go Aggies, uh, through Utah State University, and very thrilled that I have this opportunity. And I have a wonderful advisor, Dr. Susie Jones, who works in the Emma Eccles, College of Education, and she's a she's a psych researcher. But honestly, it was a journey like I was originally going to do something with history. And then I changed my chair, moved to another state and I switched chairs and I was fighting this and keep doing this thing. And one day I finally just said to my chair, I said, you know, I just really want to do what you're doing and I, I want to stop failing. I'm still failing, <laughs> you know, at that journey. The dissertation is hard. It's so hard, but I'm learning right? It's part of that process. The same goes with career progression. You know, I applied, I tell students apply for lots of jobs, take lots of opportunities. I've probably applied for over a thousand jobs in my career. And that's crazy, right? But I mean, I've never had a problem. Like, you know, I became a dean at 37, which I was expecting to have happen at like 65. And so I feel very fortunate in my career to have had that opportunity. But it's, it's all about throwing those darts. You look at what opportunities are out there and you've tried to find things that, that fit and that you might be interested in that you might be able to do. And you should have a logical career plan, but sometimes you should also just throw yourself out there and take the next move, take the next step. My current supervisor and mentor, Lori Barber, often says, that. She says, look at what the next step is. Take that next step. Who's to say it can't be you that can be successful. And you might have a hard learning curve where that failure might happen all the time. I fail at my job all the time, but I learn in those processes. It's it's about accepting failure as a reality for what might happen and then learning from it. And sometimes it ends up being that it's not as much as a failure as you think. Failure isn't necessarily negative. I think my first semester of college, I got a 4.0. My second semester of college, I won't tell you how I did. And and that poor semester, I learned. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what I did want to study and what I absolutely didn't want to study. And then I grew from that experience. So the same is true with this PhD journey for me. I'm currently kind of failing, (laughs) but I'm going to be successful in the long run because I have the right things in place. People that believe in me, like my chair and I believe in myself and a support network that I've created. So failure can be really rough if you don't have those things to back you up, like the support network to help you realize failure is something that you can get over. But Life is a journey, it's always about learning.
0: It's so interesting you bring up this idea of the more we put ourselves out there, the more likely we literally give ourselves more opportunities to fail, but it's in that process as we expand and allow more failure into our lives, we're also able to grow at the same time, and I think that's a really interesting concept. And I think, especially early on, that can be really hard to hear because nobody wants to fail. But I think you're totally right in that. Um, in order to grow, we have to be willing to fail more often. You know, we talk about the people who are most successful in their jobs, and it's like they had to fail a whole lot more than the people who didn't take on the, that responsibility, right? And so I think that's such an interesting concept and I'm really glad you brought it up.
1: Well, and can I back off of that comment yeah. real quick? So I agree completely. One thing I find from a lot of early career professionals, I would say that I'm a mid-career professional, but I've, I've landed my dream job. But one thing that I've learned about Mid, uh, early and mid career professionals, but especially with early career professionals, is they sometimes are nervous to take a certain job or to go in a certain direction. And they're worried that it's going to define everything that there is about them. And that's not the case. You can pivot and especially today, pivoting and changing in careers. It's so incredibly common and you take away from it what you learn. One of the best pieces of advice that I can give to any student who's looking for what's the next step or any career professional is to really go to your colleges like Career Center or your HR office where you work and ask for someone to help you do some interviewing skills because you're going to fail there and you can fail in a safe environment instead of failing when you actually get out to the job that you really want to get. So mock interviewing and just working with your HR office or with your college career center. And most college career centers will do this for alumni too. So that's just something that I thought of from your thought and your comment.
0: No, I love that. Yeah. And again, I think it's a great point that we, while we know we need to fail in order to get better, we can choose. Sometimes we get to choose where we fail. And so, like you said, maybe choosing to do it in the setting before the actual interview was a great, a great opportunity. So I really love that. Another question. So I know that you have um, a pretty strong love of history. And so I'd actually love to hear about one of your famous history heroes, if you will, and why it is that you look up to them.
1: So I I thought a lot about this and I'm going to go really deep and personal on this, on this historical perspective because of work that I did on this person and also how no one really knows very much about this person other than those of us who studied him. And so I'll do that direction and then I'll speak a little more generally. So my master's thesis from Brigham Young University was on Pierre Bale. So it was actually on the Huguenots. Now, the Huguenots were a religious minority, still are, of Protestants who lived in France. But France became... Uh, officially Catholic, and they were kicked out and they they were scattered to all over the world. They went to the New World. Some of them even went to Africa and China, but most of them resettled in more welcoming places in either the New World or in the UK and the Netherlands. And so my thesis was about this group of people who left France and settled among some welcoming French speaking populations in the Netherlands. And it was this kind of this Conversation of what life was like for these people and how the Netherlands was tolerant and both not tolerant at the same time. And so Pierre Bale was a philosopher and a religious guy, debatable uh, whether he was religious or not amongst some academic circles. But he worked as a philosopher, as a teacher for a church school. And so he had lots of measures of tolerance and intolerance. But his life was really tough. When he lived in France, he changed religions a couple of times because that was what they, people did to. Survive in a place that became officially Catholic, and also perhaps because he believed that way. But his brother was murdered because of he was the wrong religion, and so he he dealt. Pierre dealt with a lot of strife, a lot of struggle, a lot of hard times, and he still fought for what he believed in, and he still advocated for what he believed in. And he's known as the philosopher of the Enlightenment that advocated for liberty of conscience, which is something that you and I take it for granted every day. And we'd never even thought of, and it's just this idea that you can believe what. Whatever you want, and so he was a a champion of that. He was also champion of ethical societies that have any kind of people can have any kind of belief in religion or no religion, atheism or, or religion, and he advocated for those kinds of things. So he's an alignment philosopher, and he just went through a lot of struggles in his life. He's a great example for me of the various different kinds of things that I've dealt with in my life and finding resiliency. And he's a little known person, but Pierre Bale, Google him. He's really fascinating. And then the way that he overcame those challenges was really continuing to stick with his guns, stick up for himself and stick up for what he believed in. And he was able to do that in the Netherlands where they allowed that, you know, a lot of places didn't. And so he lived a really inspiring life that way. And so that's that's my example. I think I would also say I look to other people that have in history have some really interesting experiences and life stories. Harriet Tubman is a fascinating one that I've recently been made aware of is a character named Mother George, who it's fascinating to me. She uh, I'm on the board of directors for the Museum of Idaho, which is a phenomenal museum here in Idaho Falls. And Mother George is featured there and she lived her life as a woman and she died in 1919 and she was a midwife. Upon her death, they discovered that she was born a man. And I find this to be a fascinating case study of history in Idaho, just showing that Idaho as not diverse as some people think that it is, and Utah is similar, it's actually more diverse than you would think. And I think people are that way too. And so there's a lesson to be learned here about authenticity, about sticking to your guns, about believing in what's good and what's right and trying to do what's right and just having faith in yourself and having faith in what you're trying to do and push forward and try to, to do what you can, what you think is right
0: such interesting examples. And I love that neither of those people that you've described had the perfect life. They they had challenges. And in fact, it sounds like they had probably more challenges than you or I would consider ourselves oh, to have. Absolutely. And I... yet they're the people that we look up to. And so I think there is something to be said for role models are not people who live these perfect lives that sometimes we like glamorize and want to have, but they're actually the people who have struggled the most. So I think that's a really interesting thing that you've brought up there.
1: I agree. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Next question. So I'd love to move a little bit more into your own career path. So walk us through some of your education thus far and maybe highlight a few of the professional experiences that you've had that kind of led up to becoming the dean of students.
1: So that is a wonderful question and one of my favorite things to talk about. I started out with a career desire to be a history professor. Well, I got into the field and it was really intimidating. I actually have taught history for a long, long time, but there was a lot involved with the idea of getting a PhD in history. I still wanted to pursue a PhD. So I eventually did do that. But along the way, I found this love of student services. And um, I did have a career. So at Western Washington University, I was a student officer for several student organizations when I first started college. And so I got a taste of the student affairs profession a little bit there. And so kind of always knew about what that was. I was a residential learning assistant, which is kind of like an RA briefly, and kind of just knew that the, the field existed, but didn't really. Do much with it thereafter. Went and in, got into grad school at BYU, and it was just a lot. And I was like, oh, I need to take a break." Then I landed a great job at Utah Valley University, and I worked for their UVU Wasatch campus in Heber City. And I had a supervisor, Tom Melville, who believed in me and let me just do whatever. And I had other mentors there that were great, and friends that were great there: Sheila, Nielsen, Shad Sorensen, great people that really believed in me and, and let my career grow. And so, even though it was kind of a low paying position, I was able to leverage it. And I worked in student affairs and faculty affairs and doing things to help students and faculty at that small environment. And it really let me cut my teeth till I loved working in higher education. And then there was a Utah State University extension campus located there. And so I started my PhD at the USU Extension Campus in Hebrew City, which is this tiny little office. And then I I got a career opportunity to be an assistant director in their continuing education and professional education division down at the main campus in Orem. So that's when I attended most of my classes through the Orem site. And then my PhD program had classes in Logan as well in the summer times. So I actually attended four because I would occasionally go to the Salt Lake campus. So I actually attended four USU campuses and I became a through and through Aggie. And then I actually, it was funny, they started this master's program while I I had already started my PhD PhD. And they started this master's program. And I found out that I could get the second master's degree along the way in my field that I loved in in higher education and student affairs. And I just I loved it. I loved all the opportunities that I got at UVU and at USU. Um, Along the way, I taught for Salt Lake Community College and Utah State University's concurrent enrollment program. I taught American history for them for several years. And then I've taught for UVU for 13 years. And I taught ethics and history for them. And then I taught humanities for Salt Lake Community College. And so I just had all these opportunities. And I just said yes to to most of them, I, I you know, where it was humanly possible. Because, <laughs> you know, this, as I say this out loud, I'm like, that's a lot. And then I got to do more in student affairs. I was very fortunate to receive an award in 2013 for student affairs work that I had done at the Wasatch campus. It was just really neat to to be recognized and to learn and to do those kinds of things. And then I was looking for to, to relocate back to Eastern Idaho. I was done with all my coursework in the Ph.D. program. So I knew I could kind of work on the the dissertation phase wherever I was located. And so I made the jump. I I applied and I I had to set a goal that I would be a dean by the end of the year. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Which was crazy. And then I landed my dream job and I got to be the, so College of Eastern Idaho used to be Eastern Idaho Technical College since 1969. And then they passed a vote in 2017 to become a comprehensive community college here in Idaho Falls. And it's super exciting. It's been the the passion and dream of a lifetime for me. I, uh, we get to do, uh, create new departments and build the, build the whole program. And they had a great foundation already in student support services here, but they didn't have a dean of students. And so I applied, I actually applied for all of their dean positions <laughs> and was quickly rejected for the two that I was not very qualified for. And thankfully, uh, got an interview for the one that I really wanted and that I was very qualified for and interviewed. And the rest is history. And I've been very fortunate to have supportive leadership here. Vice President of Academic and Student Affairs, Lori Barber, and our president, Rick Amen, have been very, very supportive of me kind of building our student affairs division and doing what I need to do to be successful. And so it combines a traditional dean of students role alongside, you know, I'm basically over all the student affairs de- departments. And so it's it's a challenging and fun, exciting role. And it's all new, right? So this is a community college that wasn't a community college before in the 21st century and during a pandemic. And what does that look like? Right? Yeah. And so it's been a really fun, creative, exciting challenge. And I have wonderful staff and my master's degree at Utah State prepared me for this. And my training at UVU prepared me for this. And so it's just a really neat opportunity and I've loved it. I've been here for just about three years.
0: So cool, Mike. You know, and something that really stood out to me at the very beginning when you're talking about, I think it was with UVU, that first experience that maybe the pay wasn't exactly like ideal. But you said something interesting to the effect of there was opportunity to grow. And so I'm curious, like, what advice would you give for students who, you know, it's senior year, they're looking at prospects. Maybe they've had a couple of interviews. One, the pay is amazing. The leadership is maybe a little bit rigid, but the pay is amazing versus maybe one where there's less pay. But it seems like there's a lot more autonomy. What are your thoughts on that?
1: So that question is an awesome question. And it made me think of so many things. So I love that you asked it. So actually the first position I applied for, it was technically an admin role. And the pay, I mean, this is again, 2009 pay, but it was 26, six a year and it was an admin role. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing that. But I sunk my teeth in and I worked really hard and they did a title change for me and a pay raise in the existing role because I did such a good job. I went from being an admin to an assistant administrator. And and that's huge when you consider what it did so i made the career for myself i've had, have other friends who talk about that like you take the opportunity and you make of it what you will if you're an amazing worker and you are willing to try new things and be innovative and grow and maybe even push the envelope just a little You can create a career for yourself and build that into something fantastic instead of something that that you can't see the possibilities. I always tell people, see yourself in that role. See yourself in those possibilities. You don't know what you can do. You can transform things. You can change things. Entrepreneurs do it all the time. Why can't we do it in education? Why can't we do it in any industry? There's no reason why we can't be entrepreneurial in our careers and in our personal development and personal growth.
0: Love all of those things. I could probably talk for um, a couple of days with you about that topic. So I'll leave it at that for today. But I love sure. those insights.
1: <laughs> sure. And I didn't really address the pay question. Sometimes money's great. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the opportunity is great. I love working in higher education. I make good money, in fairness, but I could probably make even better money as a financial advisor. But I'm doing what... And financial advising is an amazing career profession. Don't get me wrong. But for me, this is the right fit.
0: Yeah, I love, I love that you kind of brought it back to... At the end of the day, do you enjoy the work that you're actually doing? Because the pay could be great, but if you hate every second of it, there's some there's some things to be weighed there.
1: (laughs) And I love I wake up and I think, oh, my gosh, I get to go to work. And that's every day. And and several of my staff will tell you they feel the same way. It's not just that I've hit some sort of career nexus. We're trying to create a culture where people love helping people and love helping students and love their jobs because they're doing quality, good work that's transforming our community.
0: Love that, Mike. Next question that I have for you. um, So. I know this is a little bit cliche, but Thomas Edison has been quoted for saying something to the effect um, when he was asked about failures, uh, you know, as he was inventing and creating the light bulb, he said something to the effect of, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. I think this is a really inspiring message in that prototyping or this process of trying things before we actually find the solutions is necessary for success. So I'd love to hear some thoughts on how you actually motivate yourself when you're still in the messy process of trial and error when you're trying to figure something out?
1: So I love this question so much. In fact, I read this question with my boss after you emailed it to me in preparation for this podcast because I was like, oh my gosh, we need to step up our game. So my, my supervisor and I, we do a weekly show for the students here. And I was just so impressed with your questions. And this was one I read to her and I said, look at this question. Look how, how much there is to explore here. I love it. So let's explore it. So you asked about how I keep myself motivated, but I'm going to twist it a little bit. It's It's not only I have to motivate myself, but I also... I'm doing student mentoring and employee mentoring. And so it's not just about inventing the light bulb for myself, but I'm also inventing the light bulb for other people as well. And so it's a process. It has to be, you have to keep the end in mind and you have to think about your what your goals are. I'm very good, one of my strengths is I'm very good at long-term goals. My dissertation advisor might disagree temporarily, but, but right, eventually <laughs> we'll get there. So how do I motivate myself? I have to look at what the, the long-term goal is. One example. So we don't have a child care center on our campus yet, but my goal is eventually we're going to. And there's hurdles that we're going to knock down in the process. And so last year, we, my coworker, Julie McMurtry, and I wrote a grant, a federal department of education grant, the C-Campus grant, which means child care means parents in schools. It's a federal grant, and it basically gives colleges and universities money to use however they need in their proposal for child care grants or to build an infrastructure for child care support services. And so we got that grant as our first step that maybe one day we could have a child care center here on our campus to help non-traditional students complete their education and come back to school. So part of this whole prototyping and part of this whole finding ways that won't work is finding pathways that will work? What is going to be the thing that can eventually develop that? We're creating a network and creating a culture and creating an environment in which it's supportive of childcare services because our long-term goal is to eventually one day get a super rich donor (laughs) to to provide the money to build a child care center on our campus. And so it's all about building that, that pathway, building those goals, looking at the things and saying, okay, how can I take this to the next step? How can I build this to the next place? And so for me, it's always about beginning with the end in mind. Where is it that I really want to go? What do I want to have happen? How do I want to build value? How do I want to build trajectory? And so that's how I do that. I look at the, End in mind. The same thing with like any kind of an event planning. You look at a backwards timeline. You say, okay, what has to happen? This is the end goal. What has to happen to get us there? I love that quote. I think it's amazing. It shows patience too, right? You have to be patient with yourself and you have to be patient with others. The last thing I'll say is kindness goes a long way. I've found as I've been kind versus not being kind that kindness works better and it makes me happier. So unless you have to not be kind, kindness is always the best option.
0: Lots of great thoughts. Um, it's making my head spin, so I'm trying to like form some words here. But <laughs> yeah, I... I really love the concept. Something I've been doing a lot of reading about recently is um, the importance of being able to see other people as humans. And I think when we are in the middle of change, whatever kind of change, you know, whatever problem we're solving, recognizing that the people we're working with to help solve these problems are also human beings with feelings and backgrounds and histories. And so I really love that you brought up the kindness piece as we're trying to solve problems. I think that's really, really key, especially as you're
1: leading a team. Yes, absolutely.
0: Moving the conversation along a little bit on a different vein, I would love to hear about one career fear of failure that you've had or maybe you currently have and how you've coped and combated. And when I say fear of failure, kind of pinpointing, you know, I think we all have things that we are worried about um, in our jobs, like, oh, what if I do X or what if I do Y? So what is one of those fear of failures that you've had in your career?
1: So I'm gonna answer it with two examples because one example is really great and one example is (laughs) meh. So, um, but I think it's good to be authentic. So the meh example is the one I've already addressed. I am so afraid of finishing my PhD. I'm afraid of both finishing it and I'm afraid of not finishing it. (laughs) There's so much fear. And anybody who's been through a PhD can identify with this process. I mean, there's writing and there's failure and there's rewriting. I wrote nearly three chapters of my first topic and I scrapped it because it wasn't what I wanted and I wouldn't want to study it anymore. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted this new topic. And so there's a lot of fear that comes there. You know, there's a lot of like, Oh, am I going to be able to finish it? I have a certain amount of time. I have a certain amount of resources. How am I going to do this? And that is super, super relevant. But as far as my career examples I think when you come into a new job, that's one of the biggest times when, especially younger professionals, seasoned employees, I think, even if they're not that old, seasoned employees don't experience this as much because they've learned how to step into a new role. But when you're a younger career professional and you step into a new role, especially if it's a big jump role, like I did when I stepped into this dean role, I mean, I was very prepared, don't get me wrong, and, and very qualified to, to step into this role. Uh, I, and I'm going to pat myself on the back for that. But it was still a huge career jump for me. And there was still a lot of intimidation and a lot of concern and worry and a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, am I really good at this? Can I really do this? Am I really capable of that? And then I think that the thing that has helped me the most is to seek out mentors. If you don't already have a mentor, seek them out. And if you, and and actually multiple mentors is great. I have a former supervisor, uh, I've mentioned already Tom Melville, who I contact every once in a while, Jessica Gilmore is a, a colleague of mine. She's an associate commissioner in Utah and I consider her a mentor. And I reach out to her via text every several months or I call her and my current supervisor, Lori Barber and our president Rick Amon, I consider them mentors as well. But you also need to build a network. Another Thing that helps to combat this inferior failure is building your network. It's so important to build a career network. And you just reach out to people, you say, Would you like to be my mentor? Or hey, should we can we connect on LinkedIn? I'd really like to know more about what you do. And I, I'd like to build my professional network and people that I rely on for your opinion and resources. And then also remember that the wheel was invented a long time ago. So if there's a problem that you're having in your career, calling other people up and asking them generally is a great solution. And I have almost never found that people aren't willing to, to meet with you and talk with you. When I first stepped in this role, shortly thereafter, I reached out to a, a man named Jason Ostrowski, who's the Dean of Students at CSI. And I went up, visited College of Southern Idaho and just talked with him. I had been in the role for a couple of months, but I just wanted to gauge his opinion. And I did the same with other mentors. I considered Lynn Reddington and Graydon Stanley, to be mentors of mine. Lynn Reddington is the Vice President of Student Affairs at Idaho State University. And Graydon Stanley is the Vice President of uh, Student Affairs at North Idaho College. But even James Morales at Utah State University, I've contacted uh, a little bit, not as often, but he was a professor of mine in the program and I've reached out uh, from time to time. I seek out the opinions of these authorities and it helps secure and alleviate my fear of failure because I have resources. We've also strengthened our student affairs network in the state of Idaho and we meet on a more regular basis now. And so communicating with those folks throughout the state who are in my same same type of role has been very helpful and I can name any one of them as people that I've reached out to for career advice and for advice to help our student body and other things like that. Also look at your mentors, you know, Utah State has a great network of people. So if the student body is part of the listener listening audience for this podcast, that's really something they need to remember. They're professors and the professionals that work at Utah State. They're interested in your careers. They were interested in mine. They have helped me. My mentor, Susie Jones, who's my chair and advisor, she helped me through a 45-minute PowerPoint presentation that she developed on how to go for your career move, administration and or professorship. She has this PowerPoint and she walked me through the whole thing and gave me some of the best advice on how to land an administration, a position in administration that I was interested in and I was successful. So it's remembering that you don't have to be this juggernaut. There are other people who've already been juggernauts. Talk to them, reach out to them, create a professional network and linkedin is designed for that cold calling is designed for that get over your fears just talk to people they want to talk to you and they want to be helpful
0: absolutely and it's so interesting i love this idea of mentorship being a space where we can actually have empathy for each other because that's really what i heard you describe was i have this fear of failure and then somebody else being able to say i had that same fear here's what i did and so i think that's really powerful that we can build relationships within mentoring that help us understand that we're not the only person who who's ever had this question or this problem and that people can offer advice. So I really love, I think that's really beautiful. I've never thought of mentoring in that way necessarily. So I really love that. Shifting a little bit more here, I know that you're in a leadership role where you get to interact with lots of different people. And so I'm really curious to learn in your current position, how you foster an environment of trust that not only allows, but actually encourages prototyping of new ideas within your departments.
1: So trust is a fun one, right? Because you want to earn it, you want other people to earn it, but you have to give it away first. So otherwise it's not coming back to you. So for my employees, I implicitly trust them unless they do something that I need to evaluate the level of trust. And the same thing goes with mentoring and so forth. I'm luckily stepped into an environment that I believe there was a desire to change the culture and to foster a a really exciting and trusting and wonderful environment. Our president, Rick Amen, is a phenomenal president. He wanted to create a culture where it was the ideal environment, and so he, he moved that direction. And there was a culture of trust that I walked into my coworker at the time, who now is my supervisor. We created a a pretty great, what we called the Dean team at the time. There are, there are three of us deans at the time. Now there's five deans and one associate dean. So we've, we've nearly doubled, but the campus has has grown quite a bit. We went from 500 student campus to about 2000 students and we're still growing. We actually grew, our enrollments actually grew during the pandemic, which is unusual, but it was kind of an education desert here And so that kind of makes sense, but the trust was there to give away. And then I gave it away as well. I gave them my trust and they in turn saw that I was willing to trust them. And it fostered that symbiotic relationship where they knew they could, they could try new things. And I foster purposeful activities and events to get new ideas. So we have a weekly meeting. We call it the SALT meeting, the student affairs leadership team. We also have an all student affairs meeting once a month. In which we actually have blue sky thinking and brainstorming and open suggestions and every employee and every student is given a pulpit to have their ideas heard because I don't have a monopoly on the best ideas. And if I know a new career professional is excited and wants to try new things, I'm going to let that happen. I want that to happen because I'm going to get older, I'm going to be stuck in my ways and I'm going to not know things. And so unless I'm fostering a culture and an environment which multiple voices are heard and we're talking all kinds of voices, we're not just talking like intellectual diversity, we're talking all kinds of diversity, then we can have more success. And also the more ideas, the more openness there is, the more people want to be a part of that. And that will encourage enrollment. That will encourage student involvement. That will encourage employee involvement. That will encourage people to be excited about what we're doing and to listen. People like to listen to new or to innovative old. Right. And so, so that's what I like to to try to encourage and foster. And, And, and in turn, guess what? It comes back to you. My supervisor is exactly the same way. And that, is awesome. It's fun. It's engaging, it's innovative. And, and it turns in dollars too. I mean, there's an economic real economic impact to listening and fostering listening.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, I love this idea of trust being a two-way street and and not just a two-way street, but that you actually have to be the one to give it up first so that people can then have the environment to build that. So I really, really love that insight. Well, Mike, we are just about out of time today, but I do have one final question that I want to make sure we hit on. And that question is, I'd love to have you share one piece of advice that you would give to people about turning failures into bright futures.
1: It's never too late. You can always do that new thing. You can always go back to school. You can always try a new hobby. You can always fix bad relationship. You can always do something better and different. It's never too late. There's always a time and a chance and a place for things to improve. There's always an opportunity. Take the opportunity. Take that next step. It's never too late.
0: Great advice, Mike. Well, before we head out today, I do want to give you just a minute. I know that you're working on several different projects. So give us a sneak peek of what you're currently working on and maybe where we can find more information as it develops.
1: Sure. So I'm always going to plug College of Eastern Idaho, but uh, CEI.edu so is our website, but I do a weekly show with my supervisor, Lori Barber, and it's mostly focused on our student body, but it got me thinking, you know, I should do podcasting. I love podcasting. It's fun. So I'm going working on a a project. Uh, I'm not going to release the, well, maybe I will. The website's not up and published yet. I I own it, but uh, eventually (laughs) it'll be available at walkerwhat.com, which is of course my last name anyway. And it's going to be my future podcast. And then I'm also um, working on my dissertation and I hope to turn that into some kind of a book project at some point eventually as well. So those are things that I'm working on. The website's not up yet, but I do own it and I'm excited to podcast And to ask people, you know, about what their passions are and about what they what they've learned in life. I'm so intrigued by different kinds of people. And so I I love that you asked me to do this podcast because our mutual friend uh, Lindsay suggested it because it's neat to hear people's experiences and to see where they can go with them. And I think that's that's what's great about your podcast.
0: Well, thanks, Mike. And thank you again on a a bigger note. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I so appreciated your insights. I feel like I have about 100 more questions that I'm ready to ask you. So (laughs) we'll have to chat at a later date. But thank you again so much for your wonderful insights.
1: Yes, you're welcome. And we connected on LinkedIn. So please keep in touch. I, I do appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining us here at the Career Studio today. Please join us next week as we continue to discuss this month's theme of failures to bright futures.